Hello, and welcome to the Nattacast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brittany Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. When welcome to the 166th episode of the Nattacast titled The Terror Part One, an analysis of a storm of swords, Samuel One, in which Samuel Tarley is walking in a winter terror land. It's the holiday seasons about when we're recording this episode. So I have to sing, right? Maybe not. My favorite Christmas song right there, all about the winter terror land. <laughs> and yeah, we're recording this at the uh, end of November. It's not quite snowy outside, but it's it's appropriate to do this in the colder seasons because this this is the ultimate winter chapter right here. Mm, yeah, you are, could not be more wrong, more right. That's right. You could not be more right. My God, this chapter is totally... Um, I think I was, I was Stephen Atwood called it the subarctic temperatures, and I'm like, yeah, that that makes sense. There, this is uh-huh. uh, this is cold, and it's only get colder as we progress into this chapter. So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our not a small council, our hand of the king, Wolfman Zach, Grand Master Tim Bob, troubleshooter of systems and designer of circuit boards, Lord Commander of the King's Guard, Mark N, Sir Keith J, Master Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws. Archbishop June, Heel of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Word in the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman, and, the Scarlet the Other Red Woman, and Mistress Whispers, Lord Micah, the Quilled Lion, War of the West, Herald the Golden Tooth, Master of the Bainfort, and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gem that was promised, Lord Jake assisted to the head of the King, Lady Zena of Lyrian, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur and Prince Rigger Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B, Lawrence Prince of Dorne, Kelly Warden of, e- Kelly Warden of the East, Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, Sir Sorcedelica, Sugar Ted's Dent, the Trog Delight Warrior, Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Beyonce's Favorite Sin, Herald of Share, Bachelor of Chromatica, Exalter of Black Lives, Defender of Trans Lives, Rainbow Commander, the Ladies and Gentlemen, and Anonicast, Non Binary, Not an Army. Oliver, the Wafer T. Well, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H Town, Veneris of House Colgarian, the First Ordain, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Overworked, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Microm, Devotee the Great, Great Game of Thrones, Portions of the Realm, Lady Realist of Seven Kingdoms, Blender Paint, Maker of Drawings, and the Michelangelo of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logus, Bloody Scorpion of the Red Field, Defender of the Letter of Kin, the Wolverine of House Corgo, Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face, Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bound Hand of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, Grave Rob Stark, the Cadaver, the Cadaver King and Horror of Heron Hall, Hold Up, the Holder of Cups, Sir Tim, the Knight Who Is Guided by Voices, Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur and Prince Breaker Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, Part 2, Lady Anna, the Lovely Castellan, Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Squire Matt S, Future Matt S, the one who bring balance to the kingdoms, Lord Kyle, Lord Samus Seaworth, Sir Max, Lord Commander of the Constitutional Guard, Lady Ivory Dane, Aspiring Noble Author in the Seven Kingdoms, Lady of Starfall, Warders of the South, and the Patron of Free Wheeling Bisexuals, Lady Jamisa, She Who Suggests the Coconuts Migrate, Lord Christoph of Arendelle, Official Ice Master Deliverer, the Valiant Pungent Reindeer King, Keeper of Feisty Pants, and Prince Consort to his Ginger Sweet Love, Queen Anna. Lord Sir Septon Brothers, Sir Grizzly Adams, the King's Justice, War of the King's Wood, and the Sheriff of the Seven Kingdoms, Lord Anonymous II, Lord Anonymous II, Lord Tyler, the Prince that promises to wait patiently for the winds of winter, Lord D.B., Sister Winter, Hopeful Romantic romantic and Unrepentant Shipper, Lord Monsef, and the severed head of a Targaryen Prince riding on the council walls. Thank you to all of our not-a-small counselors. Thank you, counselors, as always. And our spoiler warning, as we say in every episode, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three decade novels, histories, interviews, the Winsome Sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Sir Corey L., a Sworn Sword patron, who asks, I've never heard anyone else suggest the possibility that John, emerging from the Winterfell crypts via knowledge of the underground tunnels provided by Bran, could be the waking of a stone dragon after the burning of Shireen. What are your thoughts on this theory? What do you think about that, sir? Do you think uh, John could emerge from the crypts that could tie into the stone dragon stuff? Sure. I think that's a possibility. I think and, and this this goes for a lot of the theories regarding prophecies and mythical figures and the identities of who in the current storyline represent past historical slash mythical figures like Azor Ahai and stuff like that, the prince that was promised and the last hero. I think there are there are multiple ways this prophecy could be fulfilled in, in the modern context in the Winds of Winter or, or a Dream of Spring. I, I do think that John emerging from the crypts is 
sure that 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 could possibly be waking the stone dragon i think i think the one thing i would quibble with here with the theory is that the burning of shireen is going to lead to john being um john john being reborn i guess or john, not just john being re, being reborn but emerging from the winterfell crypts i i just i don't see the connection between Shireen being burned and John emerging from from the crypts necessarily. I think that part of the theory is is one where I, I feel like John is going to f- go into the crypts of Winterfell and discover something pro- about himself. I mean, there's been various theories we talked about in the past, whether it's you know a bridal cloak from Lyanna or something else. Like Rhaegar's harp has been was a theory that was really really popular about you know five or six years ago. I, I don't necessarily believe the, the latter one, but like a or, or a signet ring for. Um, you know, that would have Rhaegar's ring or something. There, there's all sorts of great things that would happen. I just I just don't think that the burning of Shireen is going to connect with 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 that part of John. I mean, there is the theory that the burning of Shireen will lead to John's resurrection. And I also don't think that's going to be the case as well. I don't think th- those things are going to be interconnected. Um, but but yeah, I, I think there's there's that that's a possibility for sure. What do you think? Yeah, no, I agree that with there's a lot of prophetic images that kind of overlap with a bunch of different characters and are designed to be that way. I think just both because George is trying to create ambiguity and both because these are just kind of the core concepts and images that drive him through the story. So naturally, they come up with a lot of different characters. I think the the tunnels uh, connected to the crypts is a very interesting idea. I think... I think Bran might be more likely to emerge that way even more than John, because Bran's uh, spent such uh, important time down in the crypts. Like at the end of Clash, he emerged and he's up at the cave right now beyond the wall and maybe could escape through the tunnels. I think that's a possibility, although the, the uh, Gendel and Gorn stuff did come up in John's chapters. So I do think that connection is strong, too. But I do agree that I don't think the burning of Shireen is going to have a, a direct metaphysical impact, especially on John. I think that, first of all, I think John is just likely to be resurrected before Shireen is burned. But also, I think that, uh, I think the burning of Shireen is likely not to produce anything super significant, not directly, not the way Melisandre is hoping. I think that'll be the final collapse inward of the Stannis campaign. Maybe it helps with the weather a little bit, as in the show, but, you know, something of that equivalent uh, or less, I think, is likely. And, uh, yeah, I agree. I think, um, you know, John. John waking as a stone dragon is a metaphor that makes sense given the crypt, and maybe there'll be a kind of uh, ironic playing out of that, where that's what Melisandre saw but didn't understand. But I don't think there's going to be a literal connection between uh, what happens with Shireen and what happens with John. So thank you to Sir Corey for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we must answer here on the Nauticast podcast. You're welcome to become a sworn sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash Nauticast A-S-O-I-A-F, where you can also get show notes, bonus episodes, merch, access to the Nauta Slack, shout out to the start and, start and end of every episode, and weekly minisodes that we record before each episode. Yes, indeed. And given that it is December, and as it is tradition, we will be releasing a special bonus. Sorry, uh, quick backstory. Emma did the tradition <laughs> song last week for our mini, so it's cultural been appropriation. Stuck in my head ever since. <laughs> I know, right? It's the worst. I am the worst of all time. So. We will be releasing a special bonus episode for all listeners at the end of this month and that we'll announce next week, which is, you know, something that's a little taste of what you could experience as a patron with all of our Patreon bonus episodes. And of course, our patrons will receive that episode way in advance and we'll announce our bonus episode topic next week for a Storm of Swords Sema 1 Part 2. So stay tuned. But enough about Patreon, patreon.com forward slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. When we last checked in with, wait, 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 we've never actually checked in with Samuel Tarley. It is our first Sam point of view episode, which is a big hell yeah for me. So when we last checked in with, I guess, the Night's Watch, they were hanging out at the Fist of the First Men when the horn blew not once, not twice, but three times, signaling the arrival of the holiday season. No, of the others, of course. Let's find out all of this newfound holiday terror and dread in this synopsis of A Storm of Swords, Samuel 1, Part 1. Sobbing, Sam took another step. This is the last one, the, the very last. I can't go on. I can't. But his feet moved again, one and then the other. They took a step and then another. And he thought that they're not my feet. They're someone else's. Someone else is walking it can't be me. I'm so excited about this chapter. What an opening to a chapter. Samuel Tarley looks down and sees that his formerly black booted feet are now white with snow, making Sam feel club-footed with ice shoes on. And the snow kept coming. 
The snow was deeper than his knees at this point, and he was dragging ass, or really dragging his feet, trying to move. And Samuel carries his heavy pack hunched over. Exhausted, Sam says he cannot go on. At every fourth or fifth step, Sam reaches down to his sword belt for the sword that wasn't there. He lost it on the fist. But he still had that dragon glass dagger and a steel dagger for meat cutting. But now the belt was adding more weight to him. His belly was so big and round that if you forgot to tug the belt, if that if you forgot to tug the belt, slipped right off and tangled round his ankles, no matter how tight he cinched it. He had tried belting it above his belly once, but then it came almost to his armpits. Gren had laughed himself sick of the sight of it, and Duller said it said, Oh, I knew a man once who wore his sword on a chain around his neck like that. One day he stumbled and the hilt went up his nose. Samuel stumbles through the rocks and roots beneath the snow. Black Bernard stepped into a deep hole and broke his ankle. He was put on a horse thereafter. Sobbing, Sam took another step. It felt more like he was falling down than walking, falling endlessly but never hitting the ground, just falling forward and forward. I have to stop. It hurts too much. I'm so cold and tired. I need to sleep. Just, just, just a little fire. Just a little sleep beside a fire and a bite to eat that isn't frozen. But if he stopped, he died. Samwell knew that. They all knew that. The few who were left. There were 50 or so. There were... There were 50 or so when they rolled out of the fist, but there were some who wandered off and died, and sometimes Samuel heard men of the rear guards screaming behind him in death. Samuel runs fast at that. They are behind us. They are still behind us, and they are taking us one by one, which is just so bone-chilling. Sobbing, Sam took another step. He had been cold so long he was forgetting what it was like to feel warm. Yes. If you are asking this question, I am going to quote every single goddamn time Samuel sobs and takes another step. Thanks for asking. Samuel describes his current garments. He's got two layers of underoos on, a lamb's wool tunic, a thick coat, chain mail, a loose surcoat, and a triple thick cloak. Heavy fur mitts covered his hands, and a scarf was wrapped around the lower part of his face with a watch cap pulled down over his ears. But he was still so cold, especially in his feet. His steps were a constant pain, and he was exhausted. Samuel hadn't slept since the fist. Sobbing, he took another step. The snow swirled around him. Sometimes it fell from the white sky and sometimes from a black, but that was all that remained of day and night. He wore it on his shoulders like a second cloak and it piled high atop the pack he carried and made it even heavier and harder to bear. The small of his back hurt abominably as if someone had shoved the knife in there and was wiggling it back and forth with every step. His shoulders were in agony from the weight of the mail. He would have given most anything to take it off, but he was afraid to. Anyway, he would have needed to remove his cloak and surcoat to get at it, and then the cold would have him. Sam wishes he was stronger instead of being so fat and weak, and now he was weighed down by all the armor and clothing he was wearing. Sobbing, he took another step. The crust was broken where he set his feet. Otherwise, he did not think he could have moved at all. Samuel sees the torches through the trees and orange halos bobbing up and down. The old bear had warned everyone to stay within the ring of fire or face woe, and Samuel was struggling to catch up with the torches with men whose legs were longer and stronger than his. Sam wanted to be a torch bearer, hoping to get a little bit of the warmth, but one of the rangers told Samuel he had a torch once and he dropped it. Samuel doesn't remember dropping his torch, but he figures it must be true. Was it Ed who reminded him about the torch? Or Kren? He couldn't remember those that either. Fat and weak and useless. Even my wits are freezing now. He took another step. He wrapped his scarf over his nose and mouth, but it was covered with snot now, and so stiff he feared it must be frozen to his face. Even breathing was hard, and the air was so cold it hurt to swallow it. Mother, have mercy, he muttered in a hushed, husky voice beneath the frozen mask. Mother, have mercy, mother of mercy, mother of mercy. Each prayer, he took another step, dragging his legs through the snow. Mother of mercy, mother of mercy, mother of mercy. But Sam's mother was a thousand miles away with his sisters and his brother. She can't hear Sam and neither can the ethereal mother. There was no country for the faith. This was no country for the faith. This was north of the wall. Sam begs for mercy over and over again. Maslin screamed for mercy. Why had he suddenly remembered that? It was nothing he wanted to remember. The man had stumbled backward, dropping his sword, pleading, yielding, even yanking off his thick black glove and thrusting it up before him as if it was a gauntlet. He was still shrieking for quarter as the white lifted him off the air by the throat and near ripped the head off of him. The dead have no mercy left in him. And the others? The dead have no mercy left in them. And the others? No, 
I, I mustn't think of that. Don't think. Just, just don't remember. Just walk. Just walk. Just walk. Sobbing, Samuel took another step. Sam trips over a root and bites his tongue when he hits the ground on one knee. He tastes blood and thinks that this is the end. He tries to pull himself up to his feet, but his strength is gone, and he's too heavy, too tired, too weak. Someone tells Samuel to get back on his feet, but Sam is exhausted. He thinks dying here wouldn't be so awful. The pain would be numbed, and he wouldn't be the first to die. Hundreds have died on the fist all around Samuel and more after. He releases his hand from a tree branch and lays down on his back onto the snow. He stared upward at the pale white sky as snowflakes drifted down upon his stomach and his chest and his eyelids. The snow will cover me like a thick white blanket. It'll be warm under the snow. And if they did speak of me, they'll have to say, I died, a man of the Night's Watch. I did. I did. I did my duty. No, no one could say I forswore myself. I'm fat and I'm weak and I'm craven, but I did my duty. Samuel was in charge of the ravens. When the attack started, Elsie Mormont ordered Samuel to not fight, but to send messages back to Castle Black and the Shadow Tower about what was happening at the Fist of the First Men. The old bear pointed a glove finger right in Samuel's face. I don't care if you're scared. If you're so scared, you foul your preachers. And I don't care if a thousand wildlings are coming over the walls, howling for your blood. You get those birds off or I swear I'll hunt you through all seven hells and make it damn sorry you didn't. And Mormont's own raven had bobbed his head up and down a croak. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Sam was sorry. Sorry he hadn't been braver or stronger or good with swords, that he hadn't been a better son to his father and a better brother to Dickon and the girls. He was sorry to die too, but better men had died on the fist. Good men and true, not squeaking fat boys like him. At least he would have not had the old bear hunting him through all hell, though. I got the birds off. I did that right at least. He had written out the messages ahead of time, short messages and simple telling of an attack on the fists of the first men, and then he had them tucked away safe in his parchment pouch, hoping he would never need to send them. And that is, I know you're going to be hate me, but that is the synopsis of part one of A Storm of Swords, Samwell One. I cannot begin to tell all of you listening how excited I am that we have finally arrived at this chapter. Emmett, tell me how much you hated this chapter. Tell me. Well, as you know, Jeff, I'm a horror guy. Always have been, like how guys who are into metal seem to have come out of the womb that way. When I was little, it was Are You Afraid of the Dark at home on TV, random short stories at the library, and then I moved up to Stephen King, and just as important, the movies he inspired. Then my interests splintered in countless different directions. Found footage, horror manga, novels from House of Leaves to Things Have Gotten Worse Since We Last Spoke, I love Grand Guignol, I love the gothic sublime, I love Shakespeare's problem plays, and I love blunt VHS gore. I love it all. But what I love the most is when horror infiltrates other kinds of stories like a virus. And that's why I love the horror sequences in A Song of Ice and Fire so much. George is even better at horror than he is at high fantasy, so these moments feel like something breaking through. A subterranean river of blood emerging like a geyser. This chapter, right here, Sam 1 and A Storm of Swords, is my favorite horror sequence in A Song of Ice and Fire. Published, at least, we did do five episodes on The Forsaken, his sample from The Winds of Winter, and The Red Wedding is up there as well, of course, but Sam 1 is so personal for me. I'll never forget my first time reading this chapter. On the edge of the bed, sunlight coming in harsh through the window, shadows growing where I gripped the page so tightly my fingers went numb. As soon as I understood what it was I was reading, the shape and scope of it, it felt like an ice pick to both eardrums, a silent, frozen scream. I withered as I read it, but it was so galvanizing, a level of rawness I didn't know existed in me. And that's why I love horror. You never forget it. Coming back now, long after the shock has faded, it's clear that Sam 1 is a work of supreme craftsmanship. Everything is as good as it can possibly be. Every element designed to make you react. A Storm of Swords is full of great chapters, but this is probably my number one. It is close to impossible, if not actually impossible, to disagree with you, sir. I don't think I'd ever read a chapter like this prior to reading it in 2012. You, you've heard this many, many times that, that by now, but remember how I've always said that the reason I picked up the book's after Game of Thrones Season 2 was to find out if Samuel Tarly died at the Fist of the First Men? <laughs> well, boy, imagine the 2012 version of me still not being sure after the prologue and coming up to the Samuel point of view chapter, recounting his march through a frozen hell. 
At no point in this chapter did I ever feel it was certain that Samuel Tarley was going to make it out of the chapter alive. For that matter, I was under no certainty that Samuel would make it out of alive, that Samuel would make it out of Samuel 2 or 3 alive either. Now, while I appreciate the genre of horror for what it is, see how it can be used as a venue to communicate deep themes, story, and character, I've, I've never been a horror guy myself. It scares me too much. I'm just a big fucking scaredy cat. And really, though, as one of those Christians, I actually believe in, you know, the spirits and principalities, demons and a kingdom beyond sight and sound, that sort of stuff there. That horror shit scares the Jesus into me, is what I'm trying to say. And I think that's why this chapter is really effective. It's a horror chapter for non-horror readers. You were talking about how it's a it's horror being infected into a different genre. To me, it feels like this is something for me as a non-horror reader that I'm reading a horror chapter, but I'm loving it because it's in the fantasy context. And I think the reason why I really enjoy this chapter is because of Samuel Tarly. And the reason why I think I I enjoy Samuel Tarly is because he's a lot like me. He's scared so bad by what he's encountering here that he's calling on the mother to save him. Samuel Tarly, like me, is not a horror fan, but he's smack dab in the middle of a horror story and he has to survive must survive or all of Westeros is doomed. I know that sounds super dramatic, but I promise I will bring it home by the end of this analysis when we talk about it. Hell yeah. I think where we should begin, though, is with the experience for the first time reader. The prologue to A Storm of Swords, as I've said, ended on the mother of all cliffhangers, that third horn blast signaling the arrival of the others. Then we got John 2, showing us the aftermath at the Fist of the First Men. Snow turned pink by blood, horses gutted trying to escape. Our minds can fill in the rest. Matt says it for us. The Night's Watchmen died. Or most of them did, anyway. Like Waymar and Will died in the prologue to the first book when the White Walkers last showed up. So George has set himself a challenge here. How do I make this the most frightening thing ever when the audience already knows what happened? He did it by building this chapter around the dread of thinking about what happened, even more than the terror of experiencing it in the moment. Sam 1 is a masterclass in tone, and it achieves its tone through structure. It's one of the most ambitiously structured chapters in the series, right up there with the Forsaken in the House of the Undying. George weaves the present moment in which Sam is fleeing the pursuing White Walkers into his flashbacks to the ambush. And that locks the reader into Sam's perspective. We were put in the position of imagining what went down at the fist. Sam is in the position of remembering what went down. Imagination and memory kind of work the same way, as we talked about in our Patreon episode on the movie Waltz with Bashir. The thing in itself, the most frightening thing ever, is a structuring absence. It's something just out of the corner of your eye, chasing you from just over the horizon too unsettling to comprehend. It's something other, a terror, both primal and alien, that Sam's rational mind is trying and failing to keep at bay. The terror is built into the very shape of the chapter. We know what happened is worse even than we imagined because of how much it hurts Sam to even think about it. Instead of starting off the chapter with the scary thing, George shows us Sam reacting to it knowing that our minds will, once again, do the rest. In other words, this chapter is not only a great example of horror, it's about horror. It's about how it slinks into your subconscious and lies there in wait, about how it takes over your mind's eye and shocks you out of yourself. For all the ground the chapter covers in terms of style, it covers almost no ground, literally, because all Sam can bring himself to do right now is take one step, and then another, and then another. Everything is reduced to the pain of getting through the moment. It's just about the worst situation that I can imagine. The physical exhaustion, the harsh environment, the trauma, the terror, Sam's unique self-loathing, and we will unpack each of these as we go through the chapter. But more important than any one of them, I think, is the way they compound into an overwhelming sense of stress you can just feel. You feel it, and it's really it, – it kind of is communicated in the way that readers react. At least me as a reader, I'm assuming many readers do this. Is like they feel that stress level ratcheting up along with Samuel Tarly. And that overwhelming sense of stress for Samuel is really potent and, and strong given many things that, that, are, that are going with Samuel in terms of his psychology, in terms of the physical limitations that he has, and also just this sheer physical <laughs> – 
toughness that, that it would take to under to do this to, to undertake this event. And I think the other angle that makes this chapter so scary is how it occurs after the battle itself. Though Sam is alive, he's he's you know for like he's barely clinging to life here, and danger is far from gone in the narrative. We're not even relieved in knowing that Sam was alive, no, because we can tell by the context, even though we can tell by the context that this chapter occurs chronologically after the battle itself, there's kind of a cancer ward feeling to this chapter, like Death's grip is closing its fingers around Samo and the rest of the Night's Watch's neck. That's the tone angle that you talked about so well, and that tone is framed within a context of Samo being utterly and correctly terrified by what he's experiencing and has experienced. There's the cold, there's the heavy pack he's carrying, there's the trauma he's experienced in the fist of the burst man. But above all of that is the literal apocalypse pursuing Samo and the Night's Watch as they desperately try to flee to safety. The terror of what's occurring overwhelms Samuel's senses, so all he could do is sob and take plotting step after plotting step. And next week, we're going to open with a question from Sir Darren S. about the sobbing Sam took another step, a uh, mantra that gets repeated over and over in this chapter. So I'll save some of the more meta thoughts for that question. But here, I just want to talk about how it, has that sense, how it adds that sense of dread. The others are closing in, and, Samuel can, and all Samuel can do is take one slow step after the other. It is hard to quantify what that does psychologically to people, but there's a sense that I get from this chapter and from those repeated mantras that this is an animal desperation taking hold of Sam here. Because Sam realizes as he thinks, but if he stopped, he died. He knew that. They all knew that, the few who were left. That's where Samo is, knowing that death awaits him if he doesn't stop moving. And yet he also knows that the others are in cold pursuit, and even if he moves as fast as he can, they're going to catch him. That's terrifying. I think that's the undercurrent for why Samo falls down and refuses to get up towards the end of part one of this chapter. Why, why, why make the physical exertion to live if you're just going to die anyways? That, that is what makes this chapter so scary to me, is Samo merely delaying the inevitable by mere minutes by continuing to move slowly forward? Now... Not being a horror movie aficionado like my beloved co-host, I can only surmise that this whole dynamic and all the things I was talking about are basically a horror movie in novel form, right? Yeah, you can really feel the cinematic influence on this chapter, I think. The intensity of that intimacy, standing in contrast to the mystical backdrop, reminds me of one of my favorite horror movies in particular. The Blair Witch Project is often credited with kicking off found footage as the horror subgenre of the 21st century, but that really didn't start until Paranormal Activity launched a wave of imitators in the late aughts. It's like when Psycho came out, and its influence slowly worked its way through the Italian giallo films and some underground stuff, before Halloween turned the model into something you could repeat forever for profit, which we pretty much did. Works that are ahead of their time often feel quaint in the rearview mirror, but also vibrant because they're not part of a self-conscious strategy. The hook of found footage is that it's an easy way to keep the budget low, which means enormous profits if you manage to turn out a hit. But few of the paranormal activity imitators captured what Blair Witch did, which was something specific to the medium of found footage. Most found footage movies just feel like a normal horror movie, but cheaper. <laughs> Blair Witch Project <laughs> kept captured something very specific to the found footage style. There's a raw, authentic quality to it, as if we're traveling through the wreckage of a nervous breakdown. The sheer power of terror is so strong that it shatters the very lens we're looking through, leaving fragments. The movie is about three film students who went into the woods to make a film project. And we're watching all that was recovered from their footage after they disappeared. It's a chronicle of their failure and disintegration, as they gradually realize they're being hunted by the titular witch. There is the built-in hook of knowing it ends poorly, just like in this Sam chapter. We know the witch gets them and we're just looking at what was left behind. We know the White Walkers attacked and wiped out most of the Night's Watch. But in the present moment for the characters in Blair Witch, the enemy is the woods as much as the witch. There's a sickening dread as the camera just keeps whipping and panning around endless anonymous trees. They're lost, they realize. They're all lost, as Sam writes on the Fist of the First Men. His present moment, sobbing as every step unlocks, unlocks misery and memories, feels like a found footage track. I mean, there's, there's uh, horror novels that make use of modern technology in a way that, way that feels very found footage-y. I mentioned things have gotten worse since we last spoke earlier. That's a, a, a book that has a, a, like a chat window as its basic structure between people as, as they descend into darkness. And obviously, uh, A Song of Ice and Fire does not work that way in terms of the technology, but I think George is mimicking the structure of it. 
The most iconic scene in Blair Witch is the protagonist Heather's confession to the camera, held unbearably close so you can see every pinprick of fear in her pupils as she talks about how it feels to be hunted. And Sam knows exactly how that feels. The first direct mention of the others in this chapter is when he describes hearing an awful scream behind them, and he thinks, they are behind us. They are still behind us. They are taking us, one by one. So as painful as it is to keep going, the alternative is even worse. Your pain only buys more pain, because you are being hunted, herded, toyed with. Sam's only escape from this slog are his flashbacks to the fist, horrifying images in isolation that are made even more effective in this context. The transitions are radical and brutal. They make the reader flinch because they're supposed to. It's as if two different stories are interrupting each other, like the cut-up technique used by William Burroughs, a way of divining and decoding meanings he thought were hidden in the text. As he said, when you cut into the present, the future leaks out. And that's what's kind of going on within Sam's mind. As Sam begs the mother above for mercy, he suddenly remembers Maslin begging for mercy. It's a picture of abject helplessness. We see Maslin drop his sword, stumble, fall, hold his gauntlet up like that knight who tried to yield to Tyrion at the Blackwater. George describes all that before he describes what Maslin is retreating from. A white who nearly ripped his head off. Valor Magulus. All men must die. In the face of death, we feel a desperate desire to, like, call time out. To stop playing before it gets real. And we recognize that in Maslin, the most universal of human impulses. And then Sam tells us that what's so horrifying about the whites is that they lack all those impulses. They're not sadistic. That would be a recognizable human impulse. They don't care. They're nothing inside. Tyrion at least reached down to that knight at the Blackwater before he realized the dude's hand was off. But the living will find no mercy in the dead. And the others? The white walkers who sent the whites? They're so scary that Sam can't bring himself to describe them. They're beyond language itself. It's hideously appropriate that at this moment, Sam trips over a tree root and falls. The memory of the others is like a hidden root, waiting beneath the snow for its chance to reach up and drag you down into your grave. The fear of death can be so strong that death itself seems preferable, in the way fear of injections can be more painful than the needle itself. This is one of the reasons horror stories can be so powerful. Our brains flinch away from contemplating death. Horror allows us to stare into the abyss in a fictional context, understanding why death might feel like an old friend. Sam thinks it wouldn't be so bad to die here and now, because then the cold stops, the fear stops, and the memories of hundreds of men dying all around him on the fist stop. What's dying of exposure next to that? The others add an extra layer to this terror, because they can bring you back from the dead, force you to keep walking forever. And that's the bleak philosophical reality this chapter confronts us with. We're not only guaranteed to die, we're guaranteed to see it coming, maybe even to choose it on some level, because life is no longer worth living. Yeah, this is one of those hideous aspects of the others, that they don't allow the dead to rest. Think about when Catelyn wrote to Lysa from A Storm of Swords, Catelyn one about Hoster's Tully's impending death. She says, it is time for father to lay down his sword and shield. It is time for him to rest. In our next Catelyn chapter, Catelyn three, Maester Vyman will tell Catelyn about Hoster's passing, saying, the battle, this battle he cannot win. It is time he laid down his sword and shield. Time to yield. The others don't allow the dead to yield. They don't allow them to rest. They put them right back to work, and that work is pulling more people down to the grave to serve as their slaves. And it's equally hideous that the people they're pulling down to the grave are people who are not yet ready to die. I mean, we're going to cover Craster's male babies and how the others likely transform them into others in our next Samuel chapter, Storm of Sword Samuel 2. But it strikes me that what the others do to more grown-up human beings in the Night's Watch and the Wildlings is similar, stealing life to make them slaves to their killer wills. 
it's been a long time since we talked about the Game of Thrones prologue. Well, not so long. If you're one of our patrons, you got to listen to our revisit of the Game of Thrones prologue we did a few months ago. But one thing that continues to strike me about the others and the whites is how metaphorically and not so metaphorically how, how cold-blooded they are. Stephen Atwell compared the others to the plague, to the plague in ice armor, and I think that metaphor works really well. For now, though, Samuel Tarly is in a horror movie. So let's talk about Samuel Tarly, the point of view character, shall we, as he's engaged in this horror movie when he really doesn't want to be here. Like me, if I was in that situation. Yes. I've compared this chapter to The House of the Undying, The Forsaken, The Red Wedding, but all those are told from established POV characters. This is Samuel Tarly's very first POV chapter. Good for him. Welcome to the party. Ugh, what a way to begin. Compared to the first Jamie chapter in this book, which took its time getting us accustomed to his headspace before the action kicked in. No such wiggle room here. George has to simultaneously describe the action at the fist and establish Sam in our minds as a distinctive narrator. As complicated as this chapter's chronology gets, that actually helps here, because George can focus the character work in the present, while in the flashbacks, Sam is mostly, though not entirely, an observer on the chaos. George uses the heightened stress of the situation to make us understand what it's like to be Samuel Tarly. Very, very stressful. Being hunted by zombies is the worst thing that's ever happened to Sam, because it's one of the worst things that could ever happen to anybody. But it's not like his life was going great up until now. Sam has been ruled by anxiety and depression from the moment we met him. Everywhere he goes, he flinches, sure that sooner or later, he's gonna get hit. So really... Life always feels this way for Sam. He wakes up afraid every morning and goes to bed afraid every night. The others are just the most exaggerated form of a world that always seems to be out to get him. I mean, the first word of his first chapter is sobbing. George comes back to it repeatedly. Every step Sam takes is paid for with a sob. Why is Sam like this? We started to learn why in book one, when he told John about the way his father Randall treated him. But that is not adequate preparation for what it's like inside Sam's head. Half his brain is perpetually screaming at the other half, calling it worthless, disgusting, embarrassing, lower than shit. It feels like every other word is negative. Sam is always describing a scenario or a standard and then dwelling on how he fell short. He can't let it go. Here Sam is, running for his life, and his brain fixates on images of everyone laughing when he cinched his sword belt too high. Who gives a shit? You're being chased by zombies. Zombies who already killed a bunch of guys who got their sword belts right the first time. But it still matters to Sam, because he's in a cage of humiliation and shame. This is just another situation he can't handle. Another test he failed. The chapter starts with Sam thinking that he's done. This is the last step, the end of his life. He cannot bear the burden of it all any longer. Deep down, Sam thinks he deserves to die. He's internalized abuse as self-loathing. He's useless, or he would have been accepted, right? So why live? Early on in the chapter, Sam thinks that someone else must be moving his feet, that it's not him. And for a moment, you might think Sam's being zombified, as John feared on the fist. Oh no, the others are controlling him. They're moving his feet. In truth, Sam is disassociating, which hints at a deeper truth. Sam wishes those weren't his feet, that this wasn't his body, because he hates it. The main reason Sam hates himself is his weight. He's always calling himself fat and associating it with weakness and childishness. No doubt Sam's weight is making it harder to keep going under these conditions, but again, Sam's perspective on this is not purely rational. This is mostly about how he's absorbed his father's perspective. When Sam thinks about how they won't be able to say he died first, they won't be able to say he forsook his duty, he is talking first and foremost about Dad. Sam doesn't even need anyone to call him names like Dad did anymore. He does it to himself first, preemptively apologizing. Sam was sorry, he thinks, as he drifts toward death. Sorry he was never good enough for anyone. It's true that all Sam can do right now is cry as the tears freeze on his cheeks, begging the silent gods for mercy that will not come. He'll push himself past that at the end of the chapter, which we'll cover next time. But I also want to say that Sam is not worthless for crying, nor for being bad at fighting and marching and so on. These aren't inherently faults he must get past to prove himself. 
His self-loathing is what he has to get past. Randall's treatment of his son is as monstrous in its own way as what the White Walkers are doing, which leads me to my other big reference point for this chapter, Stephen King's It. It's probably the novel I've spent the most time with over the years. It's my platonic ideal of horror, the peak of what the genre can achieve. It blows up horror into mythic high fantasy, blurring the lines between coming-of-age tale, blunt social satire, and cosmic psychedelia. Its child heroes grow up in a world haunted both by a Lovecraftian deity from beyond space-time and by all-too-familiar human hatred. One feeds into the other. It's impossible to tell where we begin and the monster ends. There's an incredible power in juxtaposing the metaphysical elements with the more personal and political ones. In the first chapter of It, the protagonist's little brother is killed by something in the sewer, something that presents itself as a clown to lure him close before transforming into something, and I love this line, that destroyed his sanity in one clawing stroke before ripping his arm off. It's an idyllic 1950s world in this first chapter where mom is playing Beethoven and Big Brother makes you a neat paper boat with paraffin so it won't sink. The second chapter flips the script, jumping ahead to the then-present day of the 1980s, just like how this chapter jumps around in time. In the 1980s chapter, a pack of drunk assholes beat a gay man to within an inch of his life in view of a public that does nothing about it. They flip him off a bridge where it waits to finish him off. So if the first chapter frames the city of Derry as heaven if only the monster weren't there, the second chapter frames Derry as hell before the monster even shows up. George sets up a similar dynamic here. Sam is being chased by demons both literal and internal, which are converging into one terror, one face. In it, the gay man's partner pursues the clown to try and get him back, only for the clown to look back and reveal itself, as it did to the little boy. And in the, in the present moment, that man is describing to the cops what he saw, and he says, it was Derry. It was this town. And the same is true of the others and their whites. They are Westeros. They are this land. They embody the merciless violence that Sam has always faced, even within his own family. That's really well said. And you made really wonderful points about Samuel's personality, his presence, his self-conception, and how Samuel fits into into the greater narrative fabric here and into the greater narrative fabric of, of horror and what it can do when it actually intermingles with not, not real life, but with, with different stories, settings and different stories, genres. And for me in talking about Simo Tarly, I wanted to talk about him as, as a point of view character and why he's in a storm of swords of Easter crows and the winds of winter, what his purpose in the narrative is and why I think he's totally awesome. Samuel Tarly appears in five chapters in Storm, five chapters in Feast, and back in 2020, oh, a year ago from, excuse me, a year ago from when we're recording this, George R. R. Martin reported writing about Old Town and Sam for the Winds of Winter. So our boy will be back in, in Winds, and that's going to be a blast. Three horns full, eh, perhaps, to have his POV back. When asked about which characters he most resembled, George R. R. Martin said, there's, there's a lot of me in Tyrion Lannister. There's a lot of me in Samuel Tarly. And George later expanded on what he meant by this when he was asked a similar question saying, I like to say Tyrion, but it's really Samuel Tarly. He was asked which character he resembles the most. Tyrion gets more action. He gets laid more. <laughs> but I'm more like Sam. So Samuel Tarly is an authorial insert into the book similar to Tyrion. But if I'm picking up what George is putting down, Tyrion is who George wants to be in personality. Samuel Tarly is who he actually is. Having an authorial insert in the book who is not the idealized version of yourself is kind of freaking awesome because it, I think it explains how he's able to write this chapter and successive Samuel chapters so well. George isn't simply imagining how Jon Snow or Bran Stark or Davos Seawith would react to the situation given the individual characteristics he embedded into their characters through his own imagination. George essentially is telling us what he would do if he was in the middle of a nightmare zombie apocalypse. When asked about the name Samuel Tarly, though, and whether it was inspired by Tolkien, George said, there are a number of homages to Lord of the Rings of the books. I am a huge Tolkien fan. So I think despite the fact that Samuel Tarly resembles George in personality, that there's a sense that, that I get, and I think others have gotten this as well, that that's Sam's kind of like self-loathing kind of captures some of what George might feel about himself. There is a heroic quality to Samuel Tarly in that he resembles Samwise Gamgee from Lord of the Rings and was named an homage to him. So I think that there is a ultimately a good ending for Samuel Tarly in the books. 
So that's some background on Samuel Tarly, but in terms of the plot mechanics of Storm, Samuel fills in the story of the Night's Watch after the Fist of the First Men, given that Jon Snow, our former Night's Watch point of view, is off with the Wildlings. This is similar to why Melisandre of Ashai was introduced in A Dance of Dragons as a point of view character. George knew that Jon was going to be gone yet again, and he wanted to have eyes on the wall Night's Watch Wildlings storyline while Jon was away, so to speak. George works a lot of themes into Samuel's story in Storm, how it feels to be singled out due to physical appearance, how Sam uses smart politics at the end of the book to overcome obstacles, and how he confronts an abusive past, which becomes really crystallized at the end of this chapter. But the theme I see the most in this Samuel chapter and in successive Samuel Tarly chapters in Storm is the theme of overcoming fear. And while that fear is relative to what happened at the Fist of the First Men, its roots go much, much deeper than that. I think that's a great point, that this chapter, while what happened at the Fist is kind of all-consuming in its terror, it's connected to a lot of things that relate to Sam's life south of the wall and relate to, to life in general. And given the experimental structure of this chapter and the otherworldly horrors at the heart of it all, it can be easy to lose sight of the more mundane military realities that the Night's Watch is dealing with. Even if they weren't being hunted by ice demons, the Watch would still have to deal with the problems plaguing any army in retreat. George lingers on these details every bit as much as the apocalyptic stuff, because a rock beneath the snow can kill you as much as the zombies. And you can just feel the weight of all of Sam's clothes as George writes it paragraph after paragraph, the layers of wool and armor, and the cold sneaks in anyway, so they feel like just more burdens to him. This further grounds us in Sam's experience, because even if we've never had to run for our lives, I think everyone has had to deal with shitty weather. It opens up the practical considerations that make disaster stories interesting. Uh, what would you do? How would I handle this? And we see Elsie Mormont trying his best with what Sam calls the old bear's ring of fire. Torchbearers around the edge of the march are trying to keep the enemy at bay. And we know that the undead fear the flames, but the imagery here is ambiguous. On one hand, Sam describes the torches as looking like orange halos, like the heavenly adornments of angels. This is a, a place of deliverance. On the other, calling it a ring of fire, like he does, makes it sound more hellish, as if the Night's Watch are descending, they're stuck in one of the circles of hell with no escape. It's a fragile oasis, that ring of fire, and Sam literally can't keep up with it. The sanctuary leaves him behind, in the cold. He thinks that's how it works, right? I'm not good enough. I have no part to play. His only comfort is that he did his duty, which demonstrates that Sam is not as useless as he thinks. It's a thin reed that allows him to strike back against the others as well. Sam had his orders from Elsie Mormont, who's an interesting figure to consider in terms of the themes of masculinity and abuse. On one hand, Mormont does often speak harshly to and about Sam, as we've seen in the previous books. And this contributes to Sam's constant anxiety, which contributes to how martial men like this treat him, and it kind of keeps going round and round like that. On the other hand, that's pretty much how Mormont talks to everyone, and he cares for Sam in his own way, telling him to stay out of immediate danger, focus on where he can do the most good, with the messages. Randall tried to turn Sam into a killer, and inflicted endless pain and terror on his son failing to do that. Elsie Mormont accepts on the face of it that Sam isn't up for that job, and gives him a job that few of his men could do. There is a ghastly irony to Mormont motivating Sam with fear of wildling attacks and being hunted through hell, outlandish drill sergeant shit, when the actual threat facing them now is so much worse than any of that. I think George is showing us with Elsie Mormont a well-intentioned guy who is running up hard against the limits of his imagination. He turns out to be wrong that Sam can't be a warrior, and when Sam strikes down the White Walker, it's John's words which motivate him. John, who recognized his worth and shielded him from harm before Mormont did. Human frailty so often disgusts us, because we don't want to recognize it in ourselves, nor do we want to acknowledge how arbitrary death is. We can be the strongest and the most prepared, but chance can kill us at any time. Sam 1 is not a full-on tragedy like the Red Wedding, but there is an emotional resonance to how unflinching George's gaze is here. It's an absolute refusal of sentiment. The strength has to come from within Sam, because his environment is as hostile as it's possible for it to be. It's a condemnation of something deeper and older than the old bear, or even the others themselves. It's human misery, 
the terror of existence. This chapter is a horror story, but it's also George's war poetry. The repetition of sobbing Sam took another step like a repeated motif to establish rhythm. The overwhelming details gradually building to a bigger picture. The sudden elaborate jumps in time and tone. These are all poetic moves. I was reading Wilfred Owen, the great World War I poet, who wrote all his poems in the final year of the war because he was killed in battle a week before the armistice was signed. And I was thinking of his poem, Strange Meeting. And if you'll indulge me, I'm just going to read it here because I think it, it ties so well into this chapter. It seemed that out of battle I escaped, down some profound dull tunnel long since scooped, through granites which titanic wars had groined. Yet also there encumbered sleepers groaned, too fast in thought or death to be bestirred. Then, as I probed them, one sprang up and stared, with piteous recognition and fixed eyes, lifting distressful hands as if to bless. And by his smile I knew that sullen hall, by his dead smile I knew we stood in hell. With a thousand fear that vision's face was grained, yet no blood reached there from the upper ground, and no guns thumped or down the flues made moan. Strange friend, I said, here is no cause to mourn. None, said that other, save the undone years, the hopelessness. Whatever hope is yours was my life also. I went hunting wild after the wildest beauty in the world, which lies not calm in eyes or braided hair, but mocks the steady running of the hour. And if it grieves, grieves richlier than here. For by my glee might many men have laughed, and of my weeping something had been left which must die now. I mean the truth untold, the pity of war, the pity distilled. Now men will go content with what we spoiled, or discontent, boil bloody and be spilled. They will be swift with the swiftness of the tigress. None will break ranks though nations trek from progress. Courage was mine and I had mastery. Wisdom was mine, and I had mastery. To miss the march of this retreating world into vain citadels that are not walled. Then, when much blood had clogged their chariot wheels, I would go up and wash them from sweet wells, even with truths that lie too deep for taint. I would have poured my spirit without stint, but not through wounds, not on the cess of war. Foreheads of men have bled where no wounds were. I am the enemy you killed, my friend. I knew you in this dark, for so you frowned yesterday through me, as you jabbed and killed. I parried, but my hands were loath and cold. Let us sleep now. I think the whites are like the dead in that poem. The war dead brought back with all their grievances, all their undone years, the hopelessness, as Owen writes. The enemy you killed is now your friend, putting you to sleep. And I think that's, that's zombies in a nutshell. And that line... The pity of war, the pity distilled, that's what the truth untold is. Wilfred Owen would later say, my subject is war and the pity of war. The poetry is in the pity. And I think that's what this chapter is for George. It's this, this overwhelming pity for, for the men stuck in this situation. Yeah, the men stuck in the situation, the people who have been there before, I think. You know, when we, we, we catch up with the Battle of the Fists of the First Men, you know, Sam was going to notice, notice all the wildlings that are there, but also see a few people in tattered black cloaks as well. And he realized that they are still having to fight this war over and over again on behalf of people, not people, but others who have no pity for them that, uh, that, are, that have killed them and are, and are raising them to keep on fighting forever. And I think that's one of the other hideous aspects of, of the others that just becomes very plain in this chapter for sure. And I think, you know, on the subject of war, we, we, we talk so much about war in terms of battles and generals and tactics and strategies, sexy weapons, metal ways that people die, heroic and cowardly deeds on the battlefield, on and on, and et cetera. I think a lot of what we kind of miss out, though, are things that are the day-to-day -day lives of soldiers, how heavy a rucksack is, how you feel the weight of every step when you're staggering forward. How the giant weapon you have slung around your neck balances you in a weird way, but also kind of puts you off balance as well. We don't talk about how your knees buckle under all the weight, how every step spreads a searing pain across your lower back. Samuel Tarley talks about how it feels like there's daggers in his lower back from carrying the gigantic pack. And while soldiers are always exhausted and tired in the novels and in the movies, we don't describe why. And in this chapter, we can see why Samuel was so tired. He hasn't slept because a wink of sleep could lead to death, how he has to keep moving or die. George 
takes his time to describe the physical torment Samuel experiences in trying to survive the woods. That frail humanity is something that we react against in stories and in real life because just get it together, just push on, just be better. Why can't you be better? George nails that dynamic so well that even when you're upset at Samo for not moving quickly, you understand why he can't just be better. Exhausted, overlaid with gear, freezing to death with the apocalypse on him, Samuel Tarley flashes back to the fist. What I like about this scene and how, what it's setting up that we'll cover next week is how you can see Sam's intelligence shining through here yet again. Like when Sam made the correct deduction that the bodies of Jafer and Flowers and an author don't make a lot of sense because there's no blood all around them, that's kind of coming back here because Mormont puts Samuel on the task that he can achieve. Recall that he is that only one in ten watchmen can read and write. So Samuel's job is to prep the messages. He tucks them away, and next week we'll unpack the full battle of the fist of the first men and the messages that Simo does or doesn't send. Yes, next week we'll cover the bulk of the actual battle at the fist of the first men through Sam's eyes and then flash back to the present one more time where he confronts the White Walker. And speaking of which, moving into foreshadowing and groundwork, I guess it's cheating to call this foreshadowing since it does happen in the same chapter, <laughs> but for us it's foreshadowing since we're doing it next week. George does make sure to tell us early on in this chapter that Sam still has his dragonglass dagger handy, because he will need it against the White Walker. It comes very quickly, Sam's just describing all his gear, but George puts the dagger in there, so you know he can pull it out when the White Walker shows up. Yeah, it's 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 kind of a fun little writer trick that George uses where Sam has lost his sword, and so he's left only with the dagger to cut meat. And of course, that dragon glass dagger, which has absolutely no story relevance whatsoever. I just happened to mention it here just offhandedly that, yeah, he still had that too. So when it comes back into the fore in, at the, in the latter part of a storm sword, Sam at one, it's going to be that much more plot impactful. Uh, he also talks about the horn as well. We'll talk about the next week. But he's like, oh, yes, and Samuel also grabbed the horn, too, for no reason whatsoever. It's, it's not important. It's not an important plot point that he's going to need to take forward onto, uh, onto Castle Black and, of course, onto to Old Town and a Feast for Crows. So shifting into our theory discussion portion of this episode, this chapter is really the first taste of the apocalypse, of what the others can bring. You can see potentially why it was so terrifying what happened in the past with old Nan's stories and what happened with the last hero and why humanity almost was snuffed out by the others. So I had a question for you, Emmett. Do you think that this chapter is a taste of the apocalypse we'll experience in full come the winds of winter when the others are here in force? Because as George has said, we're going to see the others much more in the winds of winter. So is this a taste of what we're going to see in much in a much fuller, larger context come the winds of winter? I think so, yeah. I think this is George establishing the tone for his apocalypse, even more than he does in the prologue to the first book. Because the prologue to the first book is so intimate and small-scale and even though it's frightening, it's very, very fantasy in its imagery, and it's just sucking into atmosphere and mood. And and Sam 1, this chapter, really does force you to contemplate the end of everything and the possibility that, that this is going to apply to all of Westeros. And I think what's interesting to consider is that George is also... He's teasing how you respond to the White Walkers in a military sense, in a leadership sense, with with Elsie Mormont, with the Ring of Fire, with some um, maneuvers he made on the fist itself that we'll talk about next week. In later later in the story, I think we have the potential to see more of that from the perspective of someone other than Sam, someone who's more confident and more in a leadership position. We'll see someone like John or Bran or Danny uh, lead armies against the White Walkers, plan how to deal with them, and so. I think uh, George is kind of teasing at that, but not giving us the full ramp up because he wants a, a full-scale war against the others later in the story. But I think he's also showing us with what Sam does at the end that uh, dealing with the White Walkers is also going to depend on individual heroism and on everyone involved finding this, the courage within themselves to stand up. So I think he is. I think he is definitely. This is this is a, a dry run for the end of the world for him. For him uh, trying out this horror tone. Because, you know, I was talking about horror kind of infecting other genres and kind of interrupting the high fantasy. And that's what the others are here to do in Westeros writ large. So, yeah, I think this, this uh, you know, and then when you get to get to the Forsaken, as he said, that that's kind of the tone he wants to have in the Winds of Winter. So I definitely think this is this is an early tremor of that for sure. What do you think? Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I think this chapter is very much George R. Martin kind of providing a preview chapter for what's gonna what's gonna look like when when the others are are upon all of Westeros and you know the the fact that we only have one other that shows up here in this chapter 
and we're likely going to see many more come, you know, the winds of winter. I think we're, we're looking at like how difficult it was to kill just one dude and kill all of these whites who are swarming the Night's Watch. I think it makes it much more terrifying with what they're going to experience in the winds of winter. And, you know, the, the thing is, is that, that I, th- I thought about this a lot and that it, when we get to the other invasion of Westeros and winds or Dream of Spring, the thing I think a lot about is how... You know, all the, the the fabled heroes of old and yore are gone, right? Elsie Mormont's not going to be Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. Ned Stark is not going to be Lord of Winterfell. Robert Baratheon is not going to be sitting at the Iron Throne. Stannis Baratheon is likely going to be dead at that point. You know, all of the big, strong military minds of Westeros are all going to be basically gone. And what's left behind are the people like Samuel Tarly, Jon Snow, Sansa Stark, Arya Stark, Bran Stark, Davos Seaworth, all of these kind of characters that you would expect to be secondary to, um, in, in like a major, like major, I mean, maybe not a fancy genre, but in terms of like a, a war story, would, would, be, would be less of the people that you expect to be on the battlefield. But these people have to triumph over the White Walkers and the others. And, you know, if we take season eight for what it is, and I and I do for what it is, I do think there will be a, a triumph over over the White Walkers in the long term, and it will be done by people like Samuel Tarly, like Jon Snow, Sansa Stark, Bran Stark, Arya Stark, and the different, and Devo Seaworth, and different characters that are surviving past those, those big burly military men that should be there on the front lines, but have been swept off of the pages and off the narrative by, by George R. R. Martin. Because, I mean, we're going to find things later in the Battle of the Fist of the First Men, how a key military leaders are all killed on the fist of the first men and what the people who actually survive are people like Ren and Samwell and Dolores Ed and they're the people that make it back to the wall and are still living by the end of a dance with dragons and i think that's that is kind of a a taste of, of things to come that the less that the least of these in Westeros so to speak the people who would be dismissed by uh by, by the by the Robert Baratheons and Ned Starks and Stannis Baratheons of the world are those that are going to rise up and be uh the ones who be ultimately victorious. Again, it kind of sounds a little bit YA fiction in, in, in that sense, but I, I, I like the dynamic quite a lot, and I think it, it works effectively in, in A Song of Ice and Fire, and I'm excited for, for what we'll see here. You know, George has said we will go farther north than we've ever gone before in The Winds Winter, and we will see a lot more of the others and learn about their backstory a lot more in The Winds Winter. So all of those things are exciting, and I'm eager to see what, what George produces in the next week or two about The Winds Winter and, these, and the zombie apocalypse coming for all of Westeros. So I think that is going to wrap us up for this analysis of A Storm of Swords, Sam One. As always, thank you so much for listening, and thank you to all of our patrons for supporting us. If you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere you find our podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F or shoot us an email at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. And you can find me at Poor Quentin on Twitter. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon. Red Relu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers. Lady of a Thousand Words. Septon Marybelt, the Shoeless Sage. Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood. Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets. Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood. Sir Way, of course. Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore. Lord Sam Kay. Wisdom Benjicut, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bull and De Morgan. Tibbs the Great, of House Catnapping. Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies. Hodinus, a prostitute. Lady Silverwing, Caboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wielder of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Lady Mira Reed, Wielder of Dark Sister, Slayer of Tinfoil, Sir Will of the Anarcho-Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Sir Small Paul, Guardian of the Stone Haven, Defender of Donatar Castle, Septon T-Bone, the Low Septon, Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids, Lady Veronica, who has abandoned the orphans at the end of the crossroads to become the Queen of Memes, Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirate, Lady Joan, Lady Ranger of the Frostfangs, Sydney of House Quo, Princess of the Friendly Black Hotties in the Summer Isles, Random, First Protector of Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things, Sir, Lady, Jordan, Defender of the God's Eye, Lord Peter, not Peter, Drinker of Strong Wine and Lord Commander of the Flat Planetos Society, Lady of Rainy Afternoons, James of House Keen, Lord of the Forest City, Admiral of the Cuyahoga, and Warden of the Western Reserve, Lady Can of House Motown, Goddess of Sips and Wine, and Sir Andrew of H-Town. Thank you so much to all our High Lords and Ladies for your support. Absolutely. Thank you folks so much for supporting us. It means everything to us. So, join us next week for part two of A Storm of Swords, Sam of One. 
in which a pale horse and rider approach and Samuel must rise, dragon glass dagger in hand, to become Sam the Slayer. Oh, so excited already. Hell yeah, I guess it's no surprise we talked about that plenty during the episode, but yeah, we're going to have an even better time with the second part of this chapter right here. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you to our patrons for supporting us again. And we'll see you, and we'll see you next week for A Storm of Swords, Samuel 1, Part 2.